Hello, listeners. This is episode 85 of the Fire Rescue Wellness Podcast, and I'm your host, AZ. Today is part one of a multi-part series where I sit down with employees and contractors of the South Metro Fire Department and talk to them about their health and wellness programs. Today, my guest is Chris Macklin, who was a former executive board member who in 2013 was placed on administrative leave and allowed to hire their first wellness employee and create the foundation for their medical, physical, and behavioral health program. They began as that one employee, and today they have a staff of 11 taking care of all of their employees. So I know you're going to Love hearing what Chris has to say, and please make sure to tune in for subsequent episodes where we speak to additional members of South Metro. Have a great day. Thank you for joining me on the Fire Rescue Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, AZ. I find the research and resources and then provide the fire service with the so what, now what, to ensure the health and well-being of every member of our profession. Together, let's thrive. Hey, hey, listeners, it's AZ, and I am back for another episode of the Fire Rescue Wellness Podcast, and today I'm joined by Chris Macklin from South Metro Fire. Chris, say hello to the people. Good morning, Annette. This has been a bit of time in the works, and I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast. And in fact, this is going to be a multi-part because we're going to have one of your strength and conditioning coaches, your dietitian, and potentially some other people on the podcast at a later date. So very exciting. Also, you may or may not know this, Chris, if you, I'm not sure if you're a podcast listener, but I reference South Metro probably once every two to three podcasts. So that's You're already thing. famous. You're already uh, famous. That's, that's great to hear. Yeah. And I saw you just had Sarah Jockey on and oh. we were just with her in Tucson and what a great collaborator, partner and friend, right? In, in oh. our industry. So awesome. She's incredible. Let's first get to know you a little bit. And these are my icebreaker questions. And the first one is, who is Chris? Uh, at the end of the day, I'm a, I'm a career firefighter paramedic by trade since I was uh, 21 years old. So 32 years in the field, 25 of those online. And I started in in the, in the public EMS with the city of Denver before I moved on to South Metro Fire. I've been here about 22 years now. And otherwise, look, I'm a, I'm a, a husband and a father. I'm in a blended family. I've got two stepsons and two of my own children and a father to <laughs> two dogs and a, a co-parent to five cats. Those five cats aren't mine. Those are my wives. Okay, you got my attention with dogs, so we'll have to talk about that. That's usually my fi- final question. We talk right. about the dogs. So right. this is a kind of a broad question, but what sets your soul on fire? This program, to tell you the truth, like a lot of us, I, I wasn't truly driven to become a paramedic or a firefighter. It was something that I, for lack of a better word, really fell into with my mom's pushing a little bit as a young man. And you'll hear that right as we talk, but as our wellness program developed, I, w- you know, I was a labor leader here on our union's executive board and really just started to care deeply about us, the men and women that serve, and how can we do better. So some of my own negative and positive experiences is how can we, you know, those union tenants that I actually really believe, leaving it better than we found it. And so this is this is what sets me on fire, honestly, is this program and, and hoping that that especially at South Metro, we left it better than we than we found it, and that as you like you know men and women that do what you do continue to share the message that 
we make it better for the whole occupation. Amen. I think that's such a tremendously good answer, and I'm so excited to dig into this whole program. But my last get-to-know-you question is, how are you changing the world? One, one, one step at a time. One step at a time. You'll hear that. We'll talk about that today, too. But one, what, you know, I mean, it's so, I've had, you know, I, one of those things I think that, that as we, uh, I'm, I'll be, I'm 53 years old. And obviously, by the tenure of my career, you could guess that I'm in that age category. But we're still evolving. And you know, we're still learning. And, we're st- and so that's, you know, one step at a time, right, is how, in my opinion, like you can, um, like, one of the things I like to share is that, like, I'm blessed where I work, um, department I work for and been empowered. But we have this entrepreneurial spirit, right? And, but, but to get where you want to go, that vision is 100 miles away. But it's one step at a time. And that's how I guess that's how I look at it is one step at a time. We'll get there. It's that old adage. You can eat an elephant. Just it has to be one little bite at a time. Journey journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. Chinese proverb. So believe in that. Precisely. And it's very interesting to me and awesome to me because one of the things that I talk a lot about is usually heavy emphasis on usually having your own people doesn't really work. But obviously, it is working. It's completely revolutionary what you're doing. So first of all, let's dig into what is this HPO model that you are basing your whole program on? And I just want you to go, you've got free reign, let's go. Yeah, I think the HPO model, right? So we started like like anything, learning, right? So continuing to learn and evolve. And as you add team members, you get a little sample of their specialty. And so, so I love embedded employees. That was an tenant that we started with because back in 2012, when we had the all the circumstances that drove us to start this program, our incumbent physical ability tests, those medical emergencies that happen our dissatisfaction with traditional occupational medicine, um, and then how our, our behavioral health program, right? That EAP and peer support lived in a different bureau, not with the men and women online. So all those things come together, right? And, but that was when we went out and we looked at Orange County and California and in LA City and County and Phoenix and Seattle. And, you know, we went, you know, towards Indianapolis. We really started to see who was doing what. And one of the things I came back with was exactly that is, a vendor model, and, I'm, and I want to be super clear, is um, like right now we have a vendor relationship with our performance dietitian, but she's wonderful and she's crushing the work she's doing because we have such a solid relationship and she believes in our vision. And when I, So if you hear me talk about my critique of a vendor model, it's a vendor business model. It's where you bring a vendor in to run your program. And so my, I'm critical there because that's a business model and they're for profit. They're not here to serve us the way we serve the public. We're not for profit as firefighters. We're taking whatever resources the city, county, or state gives us to deliver the best service we can. And that's how I look at our program. We want to do it that way. So that's a know, long-winded way of me saying is, so HPO, so we really started, and that's what I like to share too a lot about South Metro is it wasn't like we saw the solution and 
we had a bunch of money to pour in at once. We did start with a $32,000 AFG FEMA grant. We started with this, this uh, environment in 2012. Um, and, and when I first started to say, who could we hire first? I didn't know who to hire, Annette. I didn't know uh, exercise physiologist, athletic trainer, strength coach, um, you know, all these different modalities. So you're sort of flooded with those, hey, who do we start with? We started with an athletic trainer. 400 square feet and $32,000. So you bring in an athletic trainer. And, and again, I always like to share, I'm a, I'm a firefighter paramedic, right? I don't have an athletic training certificate, physical therapy, uh, psychology. I don't, that's not my world. I, I'm care, I worry about the men and women that serve and how can we do best. But as, team, as we start to assemble, assemble the team, I really get a good understanding of what an athletic trainer brings from sports medicine. So our very first hire came from the Denver Broncos, but he also had a, a collegiate division one background. So he did football and in college in soccer in, in, in division one. And then he was at the, at the Broncos. So he had the division one and professional experience, but he was able to really um, share what sports medicine was. So I'm just going to articulate it that way. So then as we move forward in time and we hire a more traditional, so let's say physical therapist, and then a physician who has a emergency medicine and occupational medicine background. And then you start to assemble our cognitive performance team. We spend a lot of time looking over the fence. Who does what the best? Not, not who in our employee population has a undergrad in exercise physiology and could we bring them into the team? Let's go find men and women that, that do it professionally already. And so when we, we went down to Fort Carson, south of Colorado Springs, and that's where we found the cognitive performance team. And then me naively, hey, how, so this is, a, this is a team that works with 100 special forces soldiers that deploy as few as one. So that tells you what, what their responsibility is around the globe. And one of, one, of, one of this gentleman's responsibilities was to get a soldier when he has one second on a target to pull the trigger or not pull the trigger in a tenth, a hundredth, millionth of a second. That was his job. And here's me, dumb. Hey, do you think you could help us prevent injuries on bailout training? Because what we had happening was, you know, we've all got those bailout bags now. And, and so we had no injuries on our ground level mock-up, but we had all these injuries coming out the fifth story window, finger impingement, rotator cuff, bicep tendon, we had all these injuries. And, and so I'm thinking, hey, but he actually said, yes. He said, yeah, we can. So that, you know, by looking over the fence, found that modality. And yeah, how can we, how can we make firefighters more resilient, better prepared, um, develop men and women that don't have the experience that you and I have? Can we deliver them a mental Rolodex before they ever run their first call? Can we start to do that work? And that's really, so that's the long-winded way of me telling you that's where HPO finally came here. Like we all have those ideas, financial security, mental fitness, physical fitness, great benefits. So the other thing I like to talk about is if you and I are worried about our families and health insurance and our pay, then we're not focused on the call in front of us either. So that's where HPO comes from is the mental fitness and resilience, the physical preparedness, the organization that creates psychological safety and builds a robust benefit package so that when you go to work, you're 100% attentive to the structure fire, the medical patient, what have you right in front of you. So that's like my short description of HPO, right? And so, but you know that HPO, the military developed that. The Uniformed Services University 
um, the military's total force fitness model. There's the model's already built, and it's just a matter of adopting those modalities. And then, and then what we did was we took what was what's historically known as a training chief in almost every fire department across the U.S. And we and we said, hey, can we do this differently? Can we put our wellness bureau, so our physician, athletic trainer, strength coaches, and then our performance and professional development bureau, so the cognitive performance team and our professional development managers and our class folks, and can we pair them with our traditional brick-and-mortar structural firefighter and EMS training bureau, which is what we did. So now our what's normally known as a, as a training chief at South Metro now is our human performance and optimization chief. And so responsible for those three bureaus. So we start to initiate collaboration. So we're using all the things possible together to unite, to try to create that, that optimal team. But also when men and women are injured and have to come online, we want to touch them with every modality that's in that that human performance and optimization wheel. We want opportunities to do professional development with them. Can we talk about financial security? And are you, are you, do you have a balanced budget at home? And are you prepared to retire well? And hey, let's work on that knee. And, and hey, let's go to the neurofeedback clinician in-house and, and, and work on your brain. So that's a long-winded way of saying what we're trying to accomplish here. I literally have chills. And I think my listeners probably do too. And I have a burning question I have to know. Was your cognitive performance guy able to help decrease those bailout injuries? Yes. Let me give you a good anecdote. Um, and that's what, and that's what, again, when I, when I talked about the very beginning, one step at a time, bad at collecting data, bad at all, because we were where our program has been altruistic from the beginning. And so but I'll tell you this. I'll use this as a really good example. So this is before any players on this team were here. So before we had athletic trainers, before we even had our wellness program, our last real formal, ba- or sorry, maze training. So I'm going to use that example. And yes, we, ha- we had one bailout training injury sense. And it was because we had a member not have his belt on at the ground level mock-up and just fell. Aww. So fortunately, the ground level mock-up. But the, my best example is maze training. And so our, so Years ago, we had mandatory, you know, 100% compliance maze training, and we had uh, we had a member that ended up needing a cervical disc replaced after a neck injury in the maze. We had a rotator cuff, and we had a fractured wrist. We just did mandatory 100% compliance maze training. We had zero injuries that had lost time. We had some tweaks and muscle stuff, but we had no one, no one that needed surgery, no one that needed to come offline, no one that needed rehab services at all. But what we did at that training is that was our real first bite of HPO. So we, we, we have a model we call our training T. And so 16 weeks before we have a training, we assemble the team. And the team is the HPO team. And so, hey, here's our training. So let's maze training. So what we did was the coaches deployed a fitness model and a plan and a program to the entire line before the maze training. So they were able to send that out, prep for training, right? And athletic trainers had an opportunity to look at that and, hey, can, what can they work on on range of motion and prevention? And then the cognitive team started working on, on a primer so men and women could start working on that mental Rolodex and preparation. And then, and then we had that team at the training. So it wasn't just the, the training lieutenant at the training. We had the, we had the HPO team at the training. And so it gave, let's say, a great example would be if you had a member that gets in there and has that moment of anxiety and isn't able to work through that breath work and to like just go through, the, right, go through that part of the maze, 
we had the cognitive performance team on the spot to work with them and pull them out and talk about what, what we're doing in that maze training. And the other elements we added to that were radio traffic, like real life. Like not like, you know, when we go through the academy, how many times do you go through the maze? And it's, it's never real life, right? It's always, and then you've done, you've done it 10 times, you've memorized the maze. And there's no, you're not getting any value after that other than, hey, I know how to get in out of my pack with one arm or, or move my helmet, or all those things. But this gave them like, they actually had radio traffic they should have been listening to. So they had situational awareness, knowing that, you know, that real, putting them in that real environment of, oh my gosh, I'm in the dark, I'm off my hose line, I need to get out of this building, but I also at the same time need to pay attention to my radio. And so that was really cool. And so, and it was also cool from the other perspective of getting the team out, like that's like sort of the fruit of their labor when men and women get to go out that are, that are, um, that are doing that, that hard work of rehab and strength conditioning, but getting them out to the training too and getting them integrated into the, the community of firefighters. And um, it was just, that was, so that's the best example of how the team assembled today has reduced injuries significantly in, in, in that. But also we're trying to improve, um, we're trying to make, a, you know, make firefighters, like I said at the beginning, more resilient, more adaptable, better, better prepared when their worst day hits them. That's our goal is that, that our firefighters are prepared for that. Chris, I don't know if there's any data for this. This is anecdotally in my head. As an aging firefighter, the older I get, the more psychologically difficult mazes are. And I'm not the only one I've heard that from. I hear it from almost everyone in my demographic. And I think, I would guess, it's because no one ever ever prepared us mentally for mazes, and certainly not after we had those little freakouts, those little hiccups. Mostly what would happen is we would get chastised, you're better than this, you need to work on it, and then you come back the next year freaking out prior. Yes. Let me share another anecdote from the maze training, Annette, that I know you'll appreciate. So there's a gentleman in our department. He's at the sunset of his career. So in 1989, he was a rookie, and he was in a roof collapse where we lost a firefighter. We lost a captain on a hose line in 1989, and he was a rookie. And he used his rookie skills because we remember how good we are out of the academy with which direction are we on the hose. And he led his engineer and other firefighter out of that fire. But he lost, he lost his captain that day. So you can imagine our, our historical model of of maybe not really being engaged in caring for men and women the best is now he's got to go to mandatory maze training. And there's, you, we all can accept like what, man, what a mountain to climb for that gentleman. How do we, and so for sure he felt that flooded, but what we did is we, we took the time with him to let him go have that experience and then have that experience with the team and prepare him. And so at the end of all that, went through the maze with the best time, right? He's, this is a gentleman who's going to, you know, he's in the end his 30 plus year career and the best time of our entire 620 line members confidently like crushing it. And like, what a, and what a, what a win instead of, cause, cause like, I'm like you. Yeah, man, as we, as we age, incidents of claustrophobia, fear of heights, oh, that's our biology, right? That's our survival DNA. I can't see as far, so I'm not going to walk towards the edge. Right. But really sort of a cool celebration um, and, and it was a non-punitive piece too, right? Like that's the other cool part is we supported him and it wasn't what you just said. Come on, you can't get through that. How, 
it was it was supportive and it, from our operations chief you know that side of the house like make this supportive so it was awesome um from my from my point from my vantage point um and i know that creates apprehension and anxiety in our men and women online but it for me it was like that was a nice win and we did the right thing and it it, it had integrity i'm tearing up a little bit i'm have to be honest <laughs> that is <laughs> that's incredible so let's go down the rabbit hole just a little bit. Let's pretend that I am a, an employee now of South Metro. I'm a relatively new hire, or maybe let's just call me a brand new hire. What are my touch points with the HPO group during that hiring process and maybe during my probationary year? What does that look like? So we try to get ahead of it a little bit too. So we moved to a different recruiting model. So again, like human resources is a huge partner in this, in, H, in that HPO model anyways, right? Like as I described before, um, but we do these recruitment events where we bring the team to the recruitment event. So they get to talk about what they do. So the strength coaches get to come and talk about preparing for the academy and then also life in the academy. And the cognitive performance team can talk about their modality. So in the past, it was the wellness session, but now it, it's expanding. So it's a couple different sessions where we can touch them. And, and so they have an idea of what they're going to see at the academy. So then during the Fire Academy, from an HPO perspective, it is the strength coaches. So they run the Fire Academy physical training every morning. So it's not like our, you know, like I, I helped. We all did that, in the, you know, in the old model is you know, you were CrossFit certified or you had this other certification and you just went and helped do PT in the morning. Well, now it's these folks that do it. And then our cognitive performance coach, so um, she works with them every Wednesday. So we've integrated morning PT. So she starts already introducing the, the recruits to the cognitive skill set. So say whether it's to help them memorize the district, what apparatus or what at what station. So she'll take, so in their group, workouts that morning she has a station so as they're going through the they have to go do a cognitive function sometimes it's stacking blocks sometimes it's stacking legos it's other times it's picking out units on a board so it, it, there's a purpose behind it and then and then obviously this the, the common sense piece is when when men and women are injured in the academy they they immediately get access to the athletic trainers and our physician and so we work really hard to reduce lost time by looking at folks early. So if a recruit's injured at morning PT, they're going to they're gonna see the athletic trainers, physical therapists, and physician that day. So that's another touch point of, of, of where HPO is. And then there's things on the drill ground. And so the cognitive performance team works hand-in-hand hand with the, the recruit training officers. And so there's another, another, another core training um, for recruits is it's a stress, it's the stress test. They call it the stress test, right? Which you're familiar with. And so that's putting them in the maze, hitting them with everything. It's to rule out claustrophobia. It's to do all those things. So they really tax them, you know, going through the maze until you're out of air. And they do that very early in the academy, but the cognitive performance team is there. So it's not like the old days where you fail, you just failed. You went, you panicked, you pulled your mask off. No, it's slow down, stop. Let's work with it. Let's work with one of the cognitive folks. Let's talk through what you're going through. Let's prepare you a little bit better. And then let's put you back in that. So that's, that's another, I think, really significant point of contact because, you know, I'm in a, I'm in an administration role, so I don't get to do that kind of, or be there all the time. And but what I do see from my vantage point is I do see this relationship being built. So the recruits with the coaches, 
right? The recruits come out of their academy and I would say 90% of them love the coaches and have already established relationship and continue to utilize the coaches' services during their rookie year and on. And the same with the cognitive team. They, you know, when a, you can imagine. So uh, her name is Sophie. So if Sophie's coached a recruit through the stress day and other touch points during their first live fire, all these other touch points during the academy, they've built a relationship. And so they've got somebody to go to. Um, but so that's really, that's sort of the introduction, right, to sort of what each PO is. And then we're trying, we're trying, we're, it's the same thing. It's one step at a time. Another, I think another good example of touch points is like, would be our SWAT medic program. So we have armed SWAT paramedics that work with two of our county sheriff departments. And so um, sort of it, I was on that team for a few years. And in my day, you were just kicked to the team and you were at the will of the, of the sheriff's department for your firearms, for all those things. And there wasn't a lot of support on our side of the house other than the medical, like the EMS side. And so what, what our SWAT medics, the, the gentleman leading that team now, really you know, has worked, worked with the strength coaches and the cognitive team. And this is another great example of like just a really awesome win. I'm going to say this is probably at least a year's worth of work of strength training combined with cognitive performance. You know, so same kind of thing, light boards and, and using, um, you know, sim- simulated weapons with, with lasers. So improving their shooting skills, the light boards, all the cognitive performance and their physical. They just went through the, their test with the county sheriff's department, the physical shooting, the whole our paramedics outshot the sheriff's SWAT team. So that's a, what a, what a home run. And it's still wonky, right? It's a, and so I was just sharing this upstairs today because the, 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 the guy that's running the, the medic SWAT team is an awesome guy. And he, you know, he sent us this wonderful email of gratitude and, and it, so it wasn't bragging, but he sent this awesome, Hey, thank you so much. Look what we did, but we didn't do it without you. And this morning, as we were talking about it, what I what what I extrapolate from that is, well, why let's not limit it to the SWAT medics, right? Can we take our company officers, our paramedics, our firefighters? Can we apply the exact same? This is sort of like a, this first run, right? Can we start applying that in every single seat on the truck or the engine or the or the medic, and create some of this where you know you were. You're raising the bar a little bit, but you're giving you're you're make you're doing what I said at the beginning. You're making a more resilient, higher functioning, better prepared firefighter, paramedic, company officer. So, wow, I I'm I'm still blown away, and I still have more questions. So let's imagine now I'm a 20 year line personnel officer, maybe towards the sunset of my career, and we're at a structure fire, and I take a tumble hurt my ankle, hip, knee, something like that. What does that look like for me then? What happens after that injury for me? Yeah, so a couple of things that we do differently um, is because we have an in-house embedded team. And this was that goes back to that original like frustration in 2012 with traditional Ahmed. So I'll just start there in the simplest form. If you remember, and you may be in that situation now, I know I was, like I said, I was just in Tucson with other firefighters at the Science to the Station conference, and you hear these same stories coming up. You get hurt and you wait two months for imaging. And so our model, that's what we wanted to, to, that's the, that was the first easy target was, hey, when we get hurt, can I just go get an MRI? Hey, when I get hurt, can I go right to get an x-ray? And so that's, so that's a great example. So let's use it, let's say a knee injury, right? So 
it, you you have a knee injury on the fire ground, you're going to come to our wellness bureau. You're going to come to our, our clinic and, and training room here in our headquarters, and you're going to see the physician, and you're going to see an athletic trainer or physical therapist. And from there, you're going to go get imaging. All right, so they determine you need imaging, and let's say you have a ruptured ACL. So you're going to, because of the network of surgeons we have, we, I'll go back to 20, I'll go back to that very first hire. And remember, I'm a firefighter, but I've got my athletic trainer partner with me who has a relationship with surgeons from his career. So he brings those relationships with us. Another value of embedded employees, especially local, if they're in your region and they already have established relationships with surgeons and centers, wow, you bring that with you, right? And so that very first surgeon, and I'm going to use his name because he did a lot for us to get off the ground, was Martin Boblick. And he's an orthopedic surgeon, and he's at the Stedman Hawkins over here across the highway. And one, he was willing to put his name on the line because that athletic trainer couldn't practice here without a, a physician. But I asked him this question, hey, I know, I know as much as we think we're athletes, <laughs> we're not professional athletes, but we're also not the general population. And I explained that nuance with him about lost time and the financial burden, but also the burden of just sitting at home when we're, we're on our feet every day. And I want to get back to work. 99% of us, that's our goal. The second, the second we know we're hurt, oh man, I want to get back to work. So I asked him, can you sandwich us in between your professional athletes and the general population? And he said, yes, as a no brainer. And we went over and met their, their office staff, the scheduler, you know, the hats and t-shirts and mugs and hey, and that's what happens now. So that, that firefighter is going to go get their imaging right away. They're going to go get that MRI of their knee. And then they're going to, they're going to, the MA or the athletic trainer at the surgeon's office is going to get them in as soon as possible. So I'll use, you know, we've had a couple of really great experiences where we've had men or women injured on a Saturday, Sunday. They have that imaging done on Monday. They see the surgeon on a Tuesday and they're in the OR on a Thursday. So that's because another philosophy, or I guess it's really almost tissue and bone only heals at a rate it will heal. So, you know, you can just, it's predictable unless there's a, you know, there's an infection or they re-injure themselves or they're not compliant with rehab. This is going to be the way it is. So we knew if we tackled it on the front end, right? But the other piece of that is that now they're, they're in our hands quicker. So they also, they may, so then let's say they have surgery, they have ACL. I'll use that example because we had a couple, I can, we have those examples. They're true. And so that person has their surgery on Thursday and they'll have that post-op appointment over at the surgeon, and then they'll come over here. They'll see our athletic trainers and physical therapists. Because of the trust created with the surgeons, we are their rehab home. And so our men and women get rehab um, here in our building. Um, and it's whether, and this is another thing that's unique, is this is work-related or non-work-related. So that same scenario can happen. Now, they're not going to come through our physician for imaging, but we will fast-track them to that orthopedic surgeon. So if that ACL rupture happens skiing or snowboarding, the path afterwards is going to be identical. We give them, they, they get their rehab in our, in, in downstairs. So the line, men and women, are always our first priority. Work-related work first, then, then non-work-related, and then staff comes in after that. And so, but anyway, so the, the way that the, the rehab team looks at it is they're going to get two to three hour sessions in the training room. They're not going like in, your, in a traditional rehab clinic, you get about 30 minutes with your physical therapist. You get 10 minutes on a bike by yourself, 30 minutes with the, the, the physical therapist, and then usually finish by yourself when they start their next patient, right? Because they're, they're turning 20 to 30 a day. 
our team said, hey, we can see eight people a day per clinician. And so that's sort of where we build this. And so you're going to get two to three hours a session, um, really three to five days a week, depending on what your injury is. And then, so we'll take that to the next step. We talk about modified beauty quite a bit. So when it's work-related, you want men and women in modified duty because you reduce, again, financially, you reduce lost time. So there's a business reason too, right? So you reduce lost time, then your insurance is cheaper year over year. But the other thing, we, we look at mod duty as another opportunity for our men and women to heal and recover and stay engaged. We want them, you know, not all the firefighters want to come to headquarters. You want your hands on men and women so they, because even the best of us, lose track of each other when they're injured. We, we get so accustomed to coming in out of the station. That's what, those are our touch points. And, and especially, I mean, imagine if you're a rover, who's, who's keeping an eye on the rover when they get injured? You know, because, hey, they're sort of off the radar, right? Even the battalion chief sometimes is like, hey, they're off the radar. And so they're sort of out in the wind. And so what we try to do is really embrace them. And so from a modified duty perspective, we've done a couple of things. We look at a a professional development opportunity. So when our when our injured employees come in, they get an assignment. They get a Microsoft Office suite assignment because men and women don't all know Excel or even their Outlook calendar or what have you. But those that's the that's the suite we use here. So then when they get a modified duty assignment that might be working for the fleet manager and he wants them to build a write a spreadsheet on the equipment on a truck because we're planning our next truck purchase, they'll know how to use at least have the basic understanding of Excel. And it gives them an opportunity. I'm a great example of that. I was injured a couple times. And if I hadn't been had these opportunities in, in, a, in the office, I wouldn't be able to function in an office environment. So we look at it that way. And then, what, and then we have a program manager. So our wellness program manager who houses all of our modified duty programs. So anyone in the organization can submit, hey, I have this task or I have this project and submit it to, to her. She warehouses them and then she tries to match the employee with their skill set with that program. And then what we tell all of our modified duty sponsors, so let's say it's the fire marshal's office, dispatch or, or, or um, fleet services, they know that, this is how I like to say it, is in an eight hour day, you get about four hours of work out of our injured employee because the rest of their workday is working on healing and recovering and, and professional development. So it's no more, hey, we want you on the clock for eight hours. We want to see productivity. No, we want to see productivity in, for four hours. But some of that's professional development, right? We want that other time, you working on your, on your physical health, your mental fitness, and looking towards getting back to work. And then from there, we, yeah, so, you know, it's, and then, and then, you know, and then like you, and I know you have some familiarity with the sports model and that stuff. And so that's where the athletic trainers and physical therapists start to collaborate with the coaches as men and women get, as their, restric as their restrictions are reduced, now the coaches can get their hands on them. And so can we start building models of, hey, we lock out the left leg, but they can start working on the other three extremities and their cardio. And then there's, and that's where the, the cognitive team can come in too, right? So we make sure everyone has access and knows these resources are available. And we're not as sophisticated as we'd like to be yet. We'd like to be to a point where, hey, we're going to hit you with every spoke in the wheel, no matter what. We're at least going to check in. Like we never, nothing's ever mandatory, right? But we're at least going to check in. Hey, this resource is available. Do you want to take advantage of it? So again, another example is we brought a neurofeedback clinician into our headquarters building. And so that's that brain training, right? So an EEG looks at your brainwave activity. Um, 
you know, a good example is we, a lot of us have this high beta wave activity in our head, that fight or flight that makes us hypervigilant and hyper aroused. Well, what, what neurofeedback can do is retrain your brain to not have that fire when it shouldn't, when you're home and you're, you're with your pets or you're driving on a sunny day, you what, you know, but that's just the way we were built to be good at our jobs. So we also make time for that when, when we have injured employees is, Hey, Go, go check in and do an intake with neurofeedback. Get your EEG done and see. And uh, so, and that's a great example of, I want to say we're close to 300 of our 620 line members have gone through neurofeedback since 2019. So they're taking advantage. So we want to, like I said, we want to, it's, a, it's that whole picture, right? It's that whole model. But that's, so that's really, and I'm sure I'm missing something, but that's what we're trying to do with, when, when folks get injured. And then this one tenant value that I know you'll appreciate too is, because I had those, I, I ruptured my Achilles and an ACL, off-duty playing soccer. But my rehab, for the most part, was they rehabbed my, my hinge joint, my knee. And my Achilles ran the regular path of rehab. That, because it was on, because we didn't have this program in place, no one was worried about my upper body strength or my cognitive performance or my cardiovascular endurance. They just rehabbed my knee. I just got my Achilles rehabbed. And if I didn't take it on myself to do those other things, no one was paying attention. So what we really want is if your cardiovascular health is, say, at 70% and, and maybe you're also struggling with other things, right? That's part of the role of the physician and the whole team is checking in on folks because you know that there's some... We all have a storm at some point in our life, and that storm could be divorce, right? That storm could be a disabled child. That storm could just be a, a promotional test. Who knows what it is? But checking in on something, because there's also something else, right? And so we really look at it like we want to look at the whole person. So we're not just going to rehab your knee. So we're going to have the coaches start to touch you. We're going to see opportunities for the cognitive team and the physician. Because she was a, she was a fire EMS medical director, an ER doc before, she gets what we do for a living. And so she's also able to, she's wonderful and able to get a peek behind the curtain. And so then we can resource people the other direction too, if they need traditional EAP psychological services and get them resourced that direction as well. So that's, so I guess that's my best summary of what it looks like if you get injured. That is a 360 degree <clears throat> approach. And I, I have one more question about that because I really want to get to the groundbreaking study you did with the heart. But my question regarding your program is how does insurance play or not play into any of this? So that's always complicated, right? And so so it's better if I just explain our environment here first. So we are self-insured on the benefit side of the house. So my my healthcare plan is 100% self-insured through South Metro Fire. So we just have a Cigna, a third-party administer, administer our plan, but it's our own money. So we're following all the rules and regulations of healthcare and a traditional insurance, but it's our dollars. And so that's a good example of... One thing I like... I'm going to say this first, too, because I like to make sure that the, the risk managers, the the mayors, the fire chiefs, everybody hears this because I, a lot of people will say, well, you're saving money, right? Well, let's be honest. We're going to spend this money anyways. You are. Whether it's workers' compensation insurance, your benefit plan, you're going to spend this lost time. You're going to spend this money. So why not add value to the money you're going to spend? Why not do a better job caring for men and women? You're going to spend the money anyways. That that line item, the CFO is always going to see that line item. But let's manage it as best we can. 
So let me back up and say, so I'll say that we're self-insured on the benefit plan. And so, you know, people might say, well, so then are you, are you, you know, what are you doing around um, men and women that are, that are injured off duty? Well, that's a, you can look at it like a direct offset to the benefit plan. If, and I'll tell you this, we believe that we're capturing about eight hundred to $900,000 a year of rehab value in our rehab services. So that's, that's money that's just not billed. So that money would be billed otherwise in our health plan. But then also in our health plan, our men and women would be held to 20 visits. They need to be recertified for 20 visits, right? And they wouldn't get the times. But if so, if we build by the hour with what we do, and if we get into the detail of the modalities, we're looking at eight to $900,000 of value. Now, and that's where I'm going about, would we spend that money anyways? Well, yeah, we, we, because we would, but we have staff doing it in-house and they're getting all those other things I talked about before. They're getting men and women that know what they do for a living. They care about them. They're coworkers. And then the workers' compensation side of the house, we are 100% insured. We have a deductible. So that deductible, um, you know, those first dollars spent up to $25,000 are our own dollars. And so in any environment where you have a deductible or you're self-insured, you can direct your dollars. Those are your dollars. And so that also gave us leverage with, with workers' compensation. And we have what's called a um, pre-authorization setup. So you don't have to go through utilization review or red tape when you need an image or you need a pain prescription. We have a, a list of about 25 different things that are automatically approved when you're seen in workers' comp. So there's no red tape. But, but, and how we've articulated that is, well, we pay the first dollar. Right? I pay from $1 to $25,000. And so let's look at a, an inexpensive ACL reconstruction. Let's say $6,800. So if you're on that fence of approving it or not, I, I'll, let's approve it. So you have some, you have some, you're able to apply some pressure to the insurance company because those are your dollars. And so when you're really sitting on a member and do you really want to drag them out through a long process? Do you really want to kick them to the benefit side of the house at that time? Where's the most two, two things, the most financial value and the right thing to do in that moment? And so sometimes we have those leverage points and when we're able to pull them, we pull them. I have to go back and look to, to be 100% sure, but I will tell you that our, our salary and benefit budget of our team is about $1.5 million. So like I said, I just said eight to $900,000 is just the rehab. So, so I can articulate that, well, maybe that team is really only costing us $400,000, $500,000, right? In, in salary and benefits. Um, so that's another place where you can articulate it. But then, and, and then one other place where we have had traction is our actual, um, the underwriting of our workers' compensation insurance is um, we, we are essentially flat. And so, which is really cool because in Colorado, since 2012, workers' compensation insurance has averaged a 3% increase over time. And we pay the exact price per member. So there isn't this dramatic reduction, well, but we haven't paid a dime more for the insurance, right, per employee when you look at it, that model. And they, they do a manual adjustment because of our program. And so and usually it's been $1.2 to $1.4 million where the underwriter just takes that amount off of our bill because of the program we have in place. And so that is it. Now, whether you can really articulate that as a savings or not because we have, do have the salary and benefits of the team, but I would say it probably makes it a wash. When you look at rehab services, the physician's billable services, it's probably a wash when it really comes to it. And you are doing the right thing for your members, which is right. Right. huge. Yeah. Well, 
I'm really excited to have you talk about this because I was blown away when we, I can't even remember, it's been probably a month now when we met, you were telling me about some, a small research study you were doing with some heart CTs. And I'm just going to, I'm going to let you tell the listeners about why you did it, what you found, just incredible results. Yeah. So it, we, and I'm going to be, I'm going to say this from the start is we're calling it a pilot because we're going to be, because the other researchers in the world and the academic world and the physicians are going to say, well, that wasn't a study. So it's a pilot. And really from our lens, and you'll appreciate this too, is our physician had some curiosity with, as technology comes into view, we had, you know, partner of our fire chief, our deputy chief of emergency services that have some of their own experiences and then we had that sentinel event that happened in 2012, where we had that 41-year-old firefighter go into cardiac arrest, performing our incumbent physical ability test. And he was resuscitated and has been back online since then. So blessed to have him here. But these, those are the things that keep this in our vision. So it was a pilot. So from my perspective, I'm looking truly at the logistics of it. 620 men and women, how can we get them through this as efficiently as possible? So that's also why we call it a pilot. Because some men and women... Um, our physician risk stratified and chose based on their high risk. So right away, like, oh my gosh, let's if we can do this, let's get these people first. And then we took volunteers too. So I want to if I'm if I get these numbers right off the top of my head, we had 28 total members go through this. So it's a small N in our population. This is our pilot effort, and we had 11 of those were volunteers. So 11 people were just like, hey, I heard you're doing this. So they so some were on modified duty. Hey, I heard you're doing this. And others had a friend that was risk stratified and did it and found something and told their story. And we had somebody, you know, so we've been sort of flooded with people that want, to, that want us to do this. So basically what we did is we, we did coronary artery CTs. So you get a, you know, you get that CT of your, it really it's your whole chest cavity. So it's going to, the, the cool thing is like, you're not doing it for that reason, but those lungs are in there too, right? So you can find some stuff too as you, you go through there. But you take a beta blocker because you want your heart rate under 60. So you'll take a beta blocker the night before and then one in the morning before you go to your CT. It's a contrast CT. So the only contraindication would be men and women that are allergic to that dye. And from there, it takes about 10 minutes. And you want to, and I've learned all these things, right? Like keep learning is you want to, you want a higher slice per millimeter CT. So you want a CT that, that looks at hundreds of slices and that that's just better. And a minimum of 64 slice CT is what you want. So just say those things because I've learned them as, I've, as we've gone through this. And then we leverage our artificial intelligence. So there's two artificial intelligence um, companies out there. One has been in existence and sort of has been the standard called HeartFlow. And then the second, the, the new and emerging company is called Clearly. And so... Um, those technologies, that artificial intelligence is able to read that um, CT in seconds or minutes, right? Where it would take a regular cardiologist or radiologist hours to read your CT, especially if it was complicated. Okay, so uh, there's that. So the artificial intelligence reads it. So the, the two technologies are a bit different in some nuanced ways. But I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about why, why my physician likes them, though, generally is... So they, they both have technology that looks at fractional flow reserve. So the blood flow past that lesion. So let's say you had a 90% occlusion in an artery, applying that fractional um, flow will tell you it, what the blood flow is below that lesion because that also helps dictate whether you need to go to the cath lab and have a stent or whether you can be managed by medication. But let me get to why I think it's, it's cool for our population. And we're going to 
You know, I don't want to go be as strong as saying our hypothesis is, but I do believe that no different than we've watched cancer evolve and appreciate cancer to a point where we've been able to, to firmly say that firefighting is a one of the high-risk categories of developing cancer, so we should be screened differently. We believe that firefighting is also should change risk stratification around um, evaluating coronary artery disease. And so what I'll say there is, so I'll just jump to our findings. And so in that population of 28 folks, we had one person. So of the 28 folks, we had one, one without any coronary artery disease. And then the rest, there's the strata, and I, de- I, can't, I can't think of the numbers off the top of my head, but that, you know, there's a zero to three score. And obviously the lower, the better. And, and so we had some, some men and women that just only needed some minor intervention, right? Some medication, um, but we had two significant findings. And so we, we had, well, we had more than two, but we had one member who had about a 50% occlusion of his left anterior descending coronary artery that needed a stent. And this gentleman was pain-free, symptom-free, sign-free, but was risk stratified. So there's one. And so this person, of course, never would have gone to see a physician. And I also want to preface all this is with most of these in our 28-member pilot, they had traditional echocardiograms and 12-lead EKGs already done at the beginning of the year. And so they weren't flagged. Those two technologies did not flag them for coronary artery disease. So we had that one 50%. He had a stent placed. Our next person that was, say, a significant finding was a volunteer. So a 52-year-old firefighter um, wants to work for three or four more years. Now, he wasn't risk stratified. He had blood pressure controlled, and he had one moderately elevated lipid, but it wouldn't have driven him to see a cardiologist. And, and after doing it, he did, he did share. So I'm always going to be super transparent. He did share that he was feeling some elevated shortness of breath when he was ascending stairs in his PPE or doing some other things, working out, et cetera. And he, in his own head, he thought he just had long COVID. This gentleman on the, on the CT and with the AI read had a 70% occlusion of his left anterior um, descending coronary artery. And when the cardiologist actually placed the stent, and when you really look at this napkin ring lesion in the AI, he had about a 90% occlusion. So what we know to be true, we can all make some assumptions from there, is that this gentleman would have been a catastrophic cardiac arrest. And if he survived, could have been debilitated from that cardiac arrest. And and the cardiologist, you know, when he first saw the cardiologist, that was what was shared with him, is probably within three to four months that he would have been a cardiac arrest. And so finding that, there's one win, right? But what a significant win. And he, he was another, it's a good story because of building relationships on the back end and some workflow is he saw the, he had that read done on Monday. Dr. Burns, our physician was able to log into the, the AI's website, look at this 3d model and call him immediately. We had him see the cardiologist came down, um, from the mountains on a, on a trip, saw our member on Wednesday and had him in the cath lab on that Friday and had that stem placed. Again, I'll go back to where leadership really likes, this was the right thing to do. This is awesome. I think we're onto something. This is also financially, it's an ounce of prevention. And so he lost two tours, two shifts, 96 hours he didn't work. And that's what we did for him. And, and you, can, you can extrapolate what could have happened if that turned into a medical emergency. But we had, we had other lesions. We found other lesions. We found people sort of global plaque. 
the cool thing about the technology, because it's again, like, oh, let me, let me back up. I forgot one comment about um, the 52-year-old firefighter is he had a calcium score of zero. So he had a good echo, a normal 12 lead, and then just a month or two before this, his calcium score was zero. So sort of following what's out there right now, there was nothing that was going to drive him to the CT and for this to get done if it had he, you know, anyways. So it's significant. Um, but I'll tell you too, that the cool part about the AI, and I know you'll appreciate this, is you, the men and women get to sit next to the physician and they get to see a 3D model of their heart. So instead of looking at a lab sheet and, and whether they understand the labs or not, they're really, they're, their expectation is that a physician or PA or nurse practitioner is going to, is telling them, hey, you need to take a statin. Okay, well, I don't, I don't really, I don't like how a statin makes me feel, or I don't want to take it because other people have told me it, it's weird, and I don't really want it, and I don't really believe it, and so those are other stories that we we heard from the members in this twenty eight member pilot. Is now I want to take my statin. In fact, now my spouse partner wants me to take my statin because they see this too. So seeing that three D model of their heart and knowing that 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 plaque is real they get to see their hard plaque that calcified plaque where that calcium score comes from and then they get to see those other two forms of soft plaque so the soft plaque that you can really make a difference on with medication and then that that hot soft plaque that's the plaque that ruptures and that's i know i'm gonna get a little bit into the weeds you know because i'm a medic but that's the plaque that your platelets are attracted to when it ruptures then that's your body's response is holy majoli hey, we're bleeding, something's going wrong, let's flood these platelets there and we're going to have a blood clot. And so sometimes it gets lost in translation that, well, that member only had a blood clot, not plaque. But it's that rupture of plaque and that cascade of platelets and, and the body's response that really creates that where, where, where a member's going to go to cardiac arrest from that blood clot. So we're super optimistic, so I'm going to close this part with one other thing. And so our goal and what we're doing is our goal is to get four, about 490 of our members through this technology next year. And then we're trying to partner with some of the other fire departments in the Denver metropolitan area. Our goal is to get 1,000 firefighters through this. But even with, if we, if, even if it's only the South Metro population, you can imagine what we can extrapolate from that. And so, again, I'll go back to my hypothesis that firefighting is a risk to coronary artery disease because of sleep disruption, uh, abdominal adipose tissue, then that's a result of high cortisol levels, just regular shift work that we know about, um, and, and, and generally not great diet and lifestyle. But we believe that what we'll be able to say with some authority at the end of this is that firefighting is a risk factor alone for cardiovascular disease, which then again gives us access to screening younger and sooner. So Chris, I want to just summarize what you said, because if someone was feeding their kid, driving in the car, deadlifting, they might be saying in their brain, oh, cool, real cool. But I think they might have missed some of the really important pieces of it, which are this, correct me if I'm wrong. One of your members who was a volunteer, who was not risk stratified, and only had a symptom of once in a while, a little bit of maybe heavy breathing going up the stairs, which he attributed to long COVID, actually ended up having a significant occlusion of a coronary artery and subsequently had a stent placed. Is that accurate? Did I hit all of it? Yes. So that member, career firefighter, 52 years, one of the risk stratified 
members told him about the study, he volunteered to be in it, or the pilot. And yes, so he ended up with at, at the stent placement. And he had just received a clean, rapid heart scan. Zero calcium score. Boom. Drop the mic on that. I think this conversation has been so impactful, and I think it's going to make a big, big difference on all of the people that get to hear about it. And listeners, if you are looking for a program to model your fire department's health and wellness or HPO program on, this is where you want to be. Also, stay tuned. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be having one of South Metro's strength coaches and also their dietitian and maybe a couple other people too. So I, I think we can drop the mic, Chris. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for your time. And this has been Chris and AZ, and we are officially out.